Hi, I'm Deborah Holchip, editor of Michigan Today. In this episode of Listen in Michigan, my guest is 1973 alum Sarah Fitzgerald. She's a longtime journalist and author who is the first female editor-in-chief at the Michigan Daily. When Fitzgerald arrived at U of M in the fall of 1969, women comprised less than 7% of the Michigan faculty and female professors were paid far less than their male counterparts. And admissions was no better. Female undergrads had to fulfill more stringent admissions requirements than male students. As a first-year student, Fitzgerald was just beginning to experience that schism herself. Assigned to the labor beat as a Michigan Daily reporter, she soon was immersed in the campus struggle to end sex discrimination. She engaged many of the players whose activism fueled the climate that led to the passage of what we now know as Title IX. There was local Democratic activist Jean Ledwith King, one of only 10 women to graduate in her Michigan law class. And there was the grad student journalist Kathleen Shortridge, who used her investigative reporting skills to actually demonstrate bias at U of M. And to a lesser extent, there was President Robin Fleming's protege, Barbara Newell, the first woman to break the VP ranks at Michigan. These are just some of the characters in Fitzgerald's new book, Conquering Heroines, How Women Fought Sex Bias at Michigan and Paved the Way for Title IX. It was King who led the Ann Arbor group that in May 1970 filed a sex discrimination complaint that motivated the U.S. Department of Health, Education, and Welfare to launch an investigation into sex bias on the U of M campus. It was the most publicized of the more than 100 complaints filed against universities at that time, and it set off a legal slog that eventually resulted in the Education Amendment Act of 1972. The act encompasses Title IX, which bars sex discrimination at colleges receiving federal support. It also amended the Equal Pay Act to include women in professional and administrative jobs in academia. Fitzgerald sees her story as something of a thriller, albeit a stealth bureaucratic one without great photos, in which Michigan's women subverted the system to bring it down from within. Fitzgerald, a former editor at the Washington Post, remembers the first time she felt the visceral gut punch of sex discrimination. It started when she was accepted to both Stanford and U of M. Here's Fitzgerald. And my parents, I should, I should say, we had, uh, they had two girls and two boys, and I always thought they had tried to treat us all equally in terms of our opportunities and financial support for our interests and so forth. But when I took this down to my father and showed him, he said he wasn't prepared to pay the cost of tuition at Stanford when I could get an excellent education at a good state school like Michigan. And it would have been fine if he had stopped there, but he went on to say, because I figure if you're not married by the time you graduate from college, you will be soon afterwards. And it, it was the first time that I ever experienced that my father viewed my aspirations differently than he probably viewed my brother's. Okay, that's what the editors of Ms. Magazine call a click moment, where suddenly you view your situation from a new perspective. As Fitzgerald would learn, the impact of that moment stays with a person. When you go back to these times at this stage of our lives, we often forget a lot of the details and it brings those memories to the fore for some of the faculty members who are older than I am that I've been in touch with, I found that the memories are still involve a lot of pain and anger. And they're happy that it's been captured, but I, I recognize that it, it was very difficult times for them. At the same time, I want to write it 
for younger generations, for them to realize what women before them did, that the battles aren't over yet. You know, this is also the 100th anniversary of women's suffrage. We go back and we revisit these eras and we look at them with new eyes and learn that our victories are built on the shoulders of women or leaders who went before us. And I think those are important lessons. I did realize in working on this story that it did have some suspense. It, it was in a little way a thriller. It had some clandestine aspects to it. There were a lot of things at stake. And also some of the people involved were colorful characters that I think had interesting backstories. I, I did think it could be made into a compelling story because I certainly felt that way about it when I was living through it. I mean, it's crazy. As a Michigan Daily reporter and editor, Fitzgerald experienced the story she was writing about in real time. And each source had a part to play. And Jean King was a woman I knew when I was on the Michigan campus, grew up in the Pittsburgh area, went to University of Michigan as an undergraduate student in the 1940s, uh, met her husband there. She had undergraduate and master's degrees in history, which I found interesting is that was actually my major. And I think uh, she had a good appreciation of history. And uh, she worked for a time as a secretary in the psychology department with Professor Theodore Newcomb, who was the department chairman and who had a lot of good contacts around the university, which she began to observe. Uh, at mid-career, when she had three children at home, she decided in kind of her own click moment that if she really wanted to be effective and have power within the Democratic Party, she needed to get a law degree. So uh, she went to University of Michigan Law School, was only one of about uh, 10 women who graduated uh, in her class in the late 60s. King was trying to set up a practice and, and you know, earn her living as a lawyer. And she got to meet a woman named Bernie Sandler at a professional women's caucus meeting in New York. And Sandler had been a, earned a doctorate at University of Maryland and got very frustrated when at a time when her department was expanding, was not willing to hire her. And she had someone, one of them who was a friendly colleague told her she came on too strong as a woman, uh, which disturbed her. And shortly after that, she had two more episodes in which she had been really put down. And she had a supportive husband at the time, and he told her, well, you're, you're the victim of sex discrimination, and it was a term she had never heard before. From her part, she thought she had been a victim of injustice, and she set out to find a remedy. She was disturbed to discover that the 1960s civil rights laws had excluded academic women from their protections for one reason or another. But she stumbled across this modified presidential executive order and realized that the federal government was now going to monitor sex discrimination by federal contractors. And she connected the dots that virtually every major university or college was a federal contractor. And this gave her the tool that she needed to begin pursuing the complaints. In the case of Michigan, after Jean King met Sandler, King went back to Ann Arbor and began thinking about how this might be pursued. One of the advantages that 
uh, King and the women she worked with had is they were university outsiders. They understood the university, but they weren't faculty members or employees at that time. And so they had uh, greater freedom to challenge the university than faculty members or employees did at the time. You mentioned Kathleen Shortridge, and Shortridge was a graduate student in uh, journalism. She had taken a seminar in investigative journalism, and she decided for her seminar she was going to explore sex discrimination at the university and went around gathering statistics and interviewing administrators, and a lot of them, including some of the admissions officials, uh, said things that they probably later regretted they did. Uh, she was the source um, where I learned in the second semester of my freshman year uh, that admissions officers had applied a quota of 55% men, 45% women to my freshman class. I had attended a high school in suburban Detroit and 36 of my classmates had ended up going to Michigan, but I'd never dreamed that I actually had to meet a higher standard than my male peers to get into Michigan. So um, Shortridge uh, did a version of her story in the Department of Journalism's in-house publication and then did some more work on it. And it ran in the Daily Sunday Magazine, got a big splash. King connected with her and Shortridge uh, provided a lot of communication skills to first the complaint and then over the coming months as an organization called Probe, uh, which was a grassroots organization of university women in a wide variety of jobs, began to get organized and Shortridge uh, was one of the leaders and did a lot of work in terms of communicating um, about their concerns to the wider community. One insider who'd played a minor but important supporting role was Barbara Newell, an acting VP in the administration. Uh, when I arrived on campus, Newell was acting vice president of student services. And as such, she was the only woman in the top levels um, of the administration at the time. Uh, although she only held her job on an acting basis until they could complete the search for the permanent appointment. She had been a protege of Robin Fleming's um, and had worked with him at University of Wisconsin and had gotten to know some of the other uh, presidents of Big Ten universities. She was an insider and many of the women viewed her with a certain amount of suspicion because of that. Fleming appointed her as the first chairman of the Commission on Women to do a lot of good work. Uh, she left Michigan in mid-1971 and within a year or two uh, became president of Wellesley College. And at Wellesley, she, she founded their uh, Center for the Study of, of Women, um, which is one of the leaders in its field. And Newell went on to become chancellor of the Florida State University system. So. They played very different roles. I think all of the roles are necessary for something like this. They don't always get along or share each other's points of view, but you need a little bit of each, I think, for successful social change. And then, of course, you have the score of uncredited extras who kept the momentum going once the complaint was filed. 
King relied on this well-placed network to monitor the administration's response to the government's investigation. Instead of demonstrating on the Diag, they were making copies of their boss's memos. It was acknowledged that there were some secretaries who were doing things that might have cost them their jobs, you know, making copies of letters um, and secretly passing it on to someone who was leading the activism so that they would be able to um, take advantage of it. And in some cases, the activists realized they had to be careful not to telegraph uh, the actual document or the source of it because they wanted to protect these insiders who were sharing um, some of the things that concerned them, for instance, that the university presidents were communicating and talking about how they could lobby um, HEW to call off their regional officials who they felt you know, were overstepping their bounds. It was the kind of thing that in, until these, they got copies of the letters, they were pretty sure was going on. And one of the things that gave me a lot of satisfaction when I was able to get in the archives all the years later were to read the actual letters and, you know, see how these presidents were talking about it. And also in some ways, the kind of disparaging ways in which they referred to this problem and clearly didn't see it as a problem. And one of the things that greatly annoyed Jean King when I interviewed her about a decade ago was that when Robin Fleming uh, wrote his autobiography, he wrote about anti-war protests and he wrote about the Black Action Movement strike and his strategies for mediating campus protests but he did not talk at all about this episode, which clearly to a lot of women on campus was a turning point for them. And there are different theories about why he didn't write about it, but um, you know, King and Fleming did not get along very well. And, and so she viewed it as he didn't write about it because he lost. But I think the answer may be a little more complicated than that. He was a very well-respected, uh, nationally recognized university president at the time was because of his skill at keeping, you know, the campus um, under control in a, in a positive way. Barbara Newell, when I interviewed her, she reflected that you know, their goal was to keep students alive. And she said, if you're an educator, that's a horrible thing to have to have as your main goal. But she said it was really uh, what they were feeling at the time in that very volatile climate. Well, one thing is certain, the issues may change, but the process of change never changes. It's not just about pushing the envelope all the time. Sometimes you have to stuff it first. My experience walking into Michigan was a little bit different than some of my peers because I had spent a year out of my senior year, January to January, as an exchange student in Australia. So I had viewed the tumultuous events of 1968 from the perspective of a foreign country and not with the same kind of perspective as a lot of my peers who had, had seen the Democratic National Convention in Chicago had experienced the deaths of Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy 
in slightly different ways than I had. You could have a protest at a drop of a hat. That was an easy story to cover. They were, they were very visual. We did not have access to the same kinds of dramatic photographs. There were, there were no visible protests involving this. It really involved um, a lot of meetings and administrators sitting around a table and women, you know, who weren't making pictures when they were stuffing envelopes in the middle of the night. And it's interesting bringing up this point. I was thinking that my another book I wrote about uh, the Republican political leader, Ellie Peterson, who was active in Michigan through the 1960s and 70s. And she realized that women were providing a lot of the grunt work in the party and felt that they were uh, being taken for granted. They were the ones who were putting in the long hours of stuffing envelopes and, and the foot soldiers of that sort of work. Gene King did the same sort of thing for the Democratic Party uh, in the decade leading up to this complaint. And then there was the episode in my book, you'll recall, when the women suddenly got the idea that if we want to communicate to campus women, let's use the campus mail service. And they sat down and stuffed envelopes and using the staff directory, addressed them, put this surge of mail into the system. And it wasn't until the mail system administrators got curious as to what's this surge of mail that they yanked the letters and said, that's a, a misuse of the university's mail service. We're not going to let you use it. It were these little, uh, as you said, subversive kinds of things that women were willing to put in the time to do. And I'm, I'm thinking in our current environment, the number of my friends who are writing postcards for to back up candidates and encourage people to vote. They may be in a position where they can no longer feel they can go door to door, and certainly in this COVID-19 era, but they found a way to be willing to take the time to do the kind of detail work that can make a difference. Well, I'll leave you with that optimistic sentiment. Even though the world feels chaotic in fall of 2020, each one of us still has power, and in exercising that power, we can make the world a better place. Okay, that's it for now. See michigantoday.umich.edu for more episodes of Listen in Michigan, and find us wherever you listen to podcasts. Stay safe and sane if you can, and as always, go blue.